back in the fur shed. I am Jeremiah Wood. This is the Trapping Today podcast, and thank you for tuning in. It's great to have you here each and every week. It is a beautiful mid-March day out there, a little bit windy. The sun is shining through the clouds, and we still got about three feet of snow here. Uh, But winter's days are numbered. Um, We've got a bunch of northwest wind blowing down some cold air to us right now, but it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Spring is going to be here, and with spring comes the spring beaver trapping, so I'm excited about that. Um, I had to get a little bit of trapping out of my system today, and I had a little lodge that I've been kind of just keeping on the back burner here close to the house. Uh, all winter long I haven't gone down and trapped it I just kind of been keeping an eye on it and I went down this afternoon and uh, and went and set a 330 at the den entrance and hopefully I'll be able to pick up a couple of beavers there so it's kind of uh, one of those things it's sometimes it's nice just to get out and set some traps um, it's very difficult to trap right now in most places so if you can find a spot like that that's convenient it's it's good so I was down there the other day, and I shoveled through snow to get down to the ice. And it, there's about three and a half feet of snow. I I went to two different places. In one place, I I shoveled snow down till I get to the ice, and I stuck the shovel in the hole. And all but the very top of the handle of the shovel was was down inside the hole. So uh, it was just a it's just unbelievable how much snow is on the ice. And of course, there's a bunch of ice underneath that. So I decided not to bother with setting over there. But this other place was right at the the den entrance. Um, I, I'd, mar- I'd kind of looked at it previously, so I knew where it was. And I shoveled down to the ice. And when I get down to the ice, I grabbed the chisel, and I went to start chipping the ice. And the first hit, the chisel went through. So we've had so much snow insulating the ice well, in areas where the beavers were moving underneath the ice and kind of uh, keeping the water uh, turbulence, the water moving underneath the ice, they're eroding away at that ice because it was so insulated from freezing from, from the snow above it. Uh, it kind of wore away at the ice all winter long. So there it was pretty darn easy to chip a hole. And so that uh, wasn't a thing to uh, to go in there this afternoon instead of conibear. So we'll see what happens. Kind of exciting. The Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. Thank you, Cots Bros, for supporting the podcast. I uh, just went on there. They got some nice specials going on right now. If you want a nice t-shirt, they they have uh, good quality shirts there. They get the Cots Bros logo on one of them. Uh, they get another one that's kind of funny. It says Got P on the front of it, and it's got the Cots Bros logo on the back. So if you want to have... Uh, wear a shirt that you can have people asking questions about and, and trying to figure out what the heck that is. My got skunk shirt's kinda of funny. I, I go I wear that in front of people that sometimes don't have any clue about trapping and what is that? Got skunked? What is that? Oh it's just a trapping supply company. And so it's sometimes it gives you an opportunity to start up a conversation about trapping. Sometimes that's good, sometimes maybe not so good, but I uh, gotta love it. Um, with the beaver season, the spring beaver season coming in a lot of places, I was thinking back to Kyle Cotts' open water beaver trapping book. 
I think that would be a really good one to pick up if you want to brush up on some ideas for beaver trapping that you might pick up. Um, you know, it's it's an older book. It's been around for a while, and, and things have changed since it was written, but there's still a lot of good resources in there. It's only 10 bucks on Kotzbro's website, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. And if you can just pick up one thing that gives you an idea for a set or makes things a little easier, uh, it's well worth the cost. Actually, when I, when I read that a little while back, I, was, I kind of, you know, I, I was messing around with, with supporting 330s, and I, I was kind of rusty. I hadn't done it in a while, and I was just kind of playing around with sticks. And I read Kyle's book, and I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about the A-frame set. It's the simplest thing ever. <laughs> just uh, two sticks and some uh, wire connecting them on the underneath and and bowed over at the top to uh, to grip tight against the 330 and and then you can just grab that thing and stick it wherever you want it and it's supported so things like that you can pick up in, in books and, and it's always good to have one of those on your bookshelf to to go back and reference uh, anytime you're looking for a few ideas so thanks Cots Bros all right we've got a lot to get into tonight and I've uh, got a whole list of topics here. We'll see how far we get. I think we can bang through all of them. They're, they're relatively short. So first off, um, I was looking at the iTunes ratings and reviews for the podcast. And I noticed that our friend Chris Pope at Coyote Trapping School is beating us in the uh, ratings category. So uh, Trapping Today podcast, we have about somewhere around 60 ratings and Chris has 70 so he's killing us um, I was thinking maybe a little friendly competition would be a good thing and if you guys don't mind I'd love for you to go in and I don't ask for it very often but if you haven't left a rating on iTunes go ahead and leave a rating even uh, write a review that would be awesome really appreciate it and maybe we can catch up to Chris uh, he's doing a good job over there so it's it's great to see another trapping podcast underway um, but a little friendly competition is good, and let's put some pressure on them. Let's let's catch up to them. Next topic: the Stan project that we've talked about before. Stan's array from Yukon Men. Uh, thank you guys. I get emails from a couple of you that funded the Stan project, uh, like I did, and uh, on the Kickstarter. Kickstarter. Um, the it was looking like it was touch and go for a while there. There's 10 days left, and they were 50% funded. And uh, a day before the deadline, they got fully funded. So the project is a go. So those of you who have pledged to that project, um, it, it's going to go through, and you're going to you're going to get the uh, rewards that uh, were corresponding to the the level that you pledged. So like for me, that there's going to be a bunch of minor things, um, and as well as a digital copy of the project when it's completed and uh, Ryan the guy that's doing all the filming for this actually is in Tanana right now as far as I know and when the project was funded he and Stan were just coming back from the Tozy River cabin doing some filming and uh, they they put up a YouTube video just thanking everybody once they came back to town and realized the project was funded so um, they're excited I know this guy's gonna do a good job he's a professional it's gonna be high quality video excellent footage and it's such a beautiful beautiful area so I'm really excited to see this come come about I, I don't know when it's going to be finished but the delivery date for the the final project is sometime in 
2020, so probably early next year, but who knows, we may be able to see some stuff uh, sooner than that. But anyway, thanks, Ryan. Uh, it's great to see that, and, and I'm excited uh, for things to come. All right, uh, update on New Mexico trapping ban. There was a bill in the legislature in New Mexico to ban all trapping on public lands, and this is a big deal. Um, I know there's guys in New Mexico, there's a lot of trappers there, and there's people who come from all parts of the country to go trap public land in New Mexico. This is a big deal. And uh, this bill was kind of spurred on by someone whose dog got caught in a trap, and the trap was actually set illegally. The guy was a lawbreaker anyway, so, so really didn't have anything to do with the trapping regulations that were on the books but that didn't stop the guy whose dog got caught and it was kind of he was kind of on a mission to try to ban trapping and uh, just as an indicator of what public sentiment is like in New Mexico it's changing and there's a lot of people who are not connected to the rural parts of the state just like a lot of other states they are becoming more and more populated in urban areas and in a larger percentage of the voting base of the state and they're electing legislators who are voting on these things so it's uh, it's unfortunate but but as luck would have it and uh, the the trappers from around the country there was a lot of people that were sending emails and phone calls to the senators and representatives there in New Mexico and a lot of New Mexico trappers did a, did a lot to fight this. Um, and the bill is officially dead. So it actually was touch and go. Again, it, it was it passed the in committee and it went to uh, I think it went it went to both the House and the Senate and, and at some point there in the process it died. but it um, you know there's a lot of bills that come up and they hit committee and they they fail the committee and that's kind of just a um, you know, part of the process where most bills in, die in committee. It's just kind of how things go. Most bills are crazy anyway. Um, unfortunately, this one passed. It was one of the, the few bills that passed, and that meant there was enough support in the subcommittee to uh, to pass this bill indicating that there was a chance it was going to go through and be like, you know, Colorado where they banned trapping there or uh, I think Arizona is banned trapping on public lands, so um, not not a good uh, prospect. Not not uh, uh, not an exciting thing to think about when you're a trapper in any of these states, because really it could happen anywhere. Um, but I wanted to read just uh, we'll probably breeze through this article because I thought it was kind of uh, a good, well-written article that was not anti-trapping. Um, which seems to be all too common. This was in the Borneo Bulletin, um, and it was titled, from March 6th, titled, Trapping Ban Bill Signals Shift in Attitudes Toward Animals, from Tierra Amarilla, New Mexico. New Mexico, and th this was written before the bill was killed, so it was still up in the air at the time. Uh, but a lot of good information here. 
New Mexico could become the latest state in the American West to place major restrictions on wildlife trapping as frontier ethics and suburban attitudes toward animal suffering collide over the use of steel foot traps and wire snares that many ranchers still swear by. A Democrat-backed bill that bans traps, snares, and animal poison on public lands, with few exceptions, is poised for a crucial vote in the state house tomorrow. Consideration by a less politically progressive Senate would come next. Newly inaugurated Democratic Governor Michelle Luan Grisham has not taken a public position yet. The proposed trapping prohibition holds implications for wildlife and recreation across an estimated 30% of New Mexico. State and federal lands where independent state licensed trappers are frequently called on to help protect native lives, private livestock or set out to harvest and sell the pelts of coyotes, bobcats, mountain lions, badgers, and beavers. Steel spring trapping traditions date back to Spanish colonial era and flourished with the emergence of trade along the Santa Fe Trail. Early fur trappers include legendary 19th century frontiersman Kit Carson. Northern New Mexico, where freshwater spring cuts a jagged line through snowpack, Tom Fisher checked on two spring-loaded foot traps in the hope of finding a coyote, fox, or bobcat. Um, and it goes on talking with, uh, with trapper Tom Fisher. Uh, environmental and animal welfare groups have rallied to support the trapping restrictions. They've been joined by household dog owners who tell harrowing tales of pets trapped in steel vice traps while hiking on public land. And it goes into a little bit more um, on the, the antis. Fisher, who traps on private and public land, has forged trusted relationships with local ranchers such as Antonio Manzeras, whose flock of about 800 sheep roam private land in the winter and public land in warmer months. Manzeras depends on shepherd and herding dogs to keep in check predators that kill about 5% of his flock each year. But he said traps are a crucial tool as well, and worries opponents of trapping eventually will seek restrictions on private land trapping. Manzera's Ranch sells organic lamb to restaurants in upscale farmer's market 110 kilometers away in Santa Fe. We're just trying to make a living, he said. There's other people, they've already made it, and apparently they're just looking for pleasure. So their dog gets caught in a trap, they can release it. <laughs> this guy's, I like this guy's uh, thoughts. He's funny. Um, backers of the trapping ban bill say it will allow more humane cage traps on public land. Um, I guess none of them have trapped for coyotes before and tried to use cages. Um, at a House committee hearing this week, Republicans came to rhetorical rescue of ranchers, conceding only that new trapping restrictions might be appropriate where suburbs border wildlands. Democratic Representative Matthew McQueen of Galisteo, lead sponsor of the bill, ceded no ground. Trapping's cruel. I think animals suffer and die a horrible death. And he goes on. I'm not going to read all that. Major restrictions on trapping have been enacted in nearby states over the last 20 years. In Colorado, Constitutional Amendment 97 prohibited trapping, snares, and poison on public and private land, though 30-day exceptions are granted when landowners or tenants show that livestock or crop damage can't be prevented by sanctioned or non-lethal methods. Since 1994, Arizona has banned the use of foothold traps and snares on public land with few exceptions. California banned by ballot initiative in 98, the use of body grip traps, and bobcat trapping was banned completely in late 2015. And a bill introduced this year in California would do away with fur trapping altogether. So that's the New Mexico uh, trapping ban, and for now it's gone, it's dead, but um, you know these things, these things have a way of coming back. And 
as trappers we're kind of always playing defense when it comes to this stuff so keep an eye out um just another case where maybe we need to start being more progressive on the trapping front educating more people uh, about trapping and speaking of trapping education our friends to the north in Ontario are all about education and uh, they seem to be pretty supportive of uh, trapping and and natural resource um, harvesting so this is an article from uh, Ontario Bay Today .ca, a million dollars will go to training trappers. About 8,000 trapping licenses are issued in Ontario every year. Fur trappers got a thumbs up for the work they do from the Minister of Natural Resources and Forestry, John Yakabuski, Friday at the Fur Harvester's Warehouse. Yakabuski showed his support in a material way by announcing a $1.1 million in funding to support the trapping industry. The Ontario Fur Managers Federation will use it to administer trapping education program and to provide license services for trappers and trapping instructors. Yakubuski told CKAT that trappers play a vital role in wildlife control and the government wants to support it. Man, why are things so different up in Canada? Trapping is a huge part of Ontario's economy and the culture too. We depend on Fur Managers Association to provide the knowledge the educational programs and the licensing for the trappers to ensure they are being continuously upgraded on the most up-to-date and humane methods of conducting their trapping. The association provides a service on behalf of the government. It's a partnership that's worked very, very well and we're happy that the Fur Manager Association continues to be willing to take on that responsibility. They make their living in this business. They know trapping, he explained to reporters. About 8,000 trapping licenses are issued every year. General Manager of the Ontario Fur Manager Federation is Robin Horwath. He says he's been doing this work for more than 20 years. If we weren't here to do this work for the government, I don't know who would be, he says. Horwath says for over two decades they've been helping ministry, and he's glad that work will continue, including issuing harvest reports. So no, not, not everything is, is perfect or, or better up there. In Canada, there's a lot of things in Canada, Canadian trapping that I don't necessarily agree with, but um, it's good to see them supporting, you know, their their government supporting the trapping industry. Um, it's kind of kind of cool. And speaking of Ontario, something happened in North Bay, Ontario, recently, and I think all of you were aware that we had big fur auction. Um, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, about fur harvesters auction results and a little bit about fur prices, fur tanning and shipping fur. That's all to come. But first, I have one more little bit of news to go over. This is about uh, bear trapping in Maine. So Maine is the only state left in the lower 48 that I'm aware of that you can still trap for bears. Uh, the only legal methods are uh, cable snares, which are the same snares set up that, that is used to capture bears every year by the Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, the state of Maine, when they do their bear research and radio collaring program. So it's a, a very humane method of trapping. It's very effective. It's been going on for a long, long time. It's part of the cultural tradition here, and there's somewhere between 100 and 150 bears that are harvested each year during the trapping season. 
but there's been some big changes. So uh, something happened, I, I mentioned in a previous podcast, where there was an impetus to revisit the bear trapping regulations, and the department decided to make some changes in order to uh, eliminate the risk of capturing a Canada lynx in a bear trap. Um, again, lynx are still considered endangered, even though the feds have uh, have indicated that they are pursuing delisting of the lynx. And if that happens, hopefully there'll be an opportunity to uh, for main trappers to have some uh, see some changes and lobby for some changes to our trapping regulations as it pertains to lynx. But for now, they are protected, so uh, we are uh, kind of in a bind here. So I just, I'm not here to argue uh, for or against these changes at this time, but I thought main trappers who who are bear trapping uh, in the coming year, I thought this would be good for you to know. This regulation proposal was put in place, uh, if you remember during the season there was an emergency regulation that was uh, implemented that, that eliminated certain types of bear trapping. Uh, and then this is kind of the long-term change that was uh, come up with in, in order to uh, to prevent that risk of catching a lynx. So this was a rulemaking proposal. It has been in for public comment. There's been a public hearing. And uh, this is, if passed, this is what the rule is going to be. So uh, it, it's unlikely there are going to be any changes for the coming year. Um, but I'm I'm just going to read some of the changes that you're going to see the additions to the uh, to the regulations for bear trapping. The cable that you use to snare bear must be at least three sixteenth inches in diameter. The cable must include a swivel. The cable must be securely attached to a fixed anchor point. If a tree is used as an anchor, it must be at least six inches in diameter at four point five feet above ground level and must be free of limbs for at least seven feet above the ground. The distance from the anchor to the end of the closed cable loop, i.e. the catch circle, must be no greater than eight feet, and the area within the catch circle must be clear of woody vegetation, debris, and man-made material that could cause entanglement of a trapped bear. Small sticks and rocks and rotten decaying woody material may be used for stepping guides blocking and backing for trap sets if they are not rooted to the ground. Whenever whenever a cable trap foothold cable restraint is used in conjunction with a device designed to capture bear when it reaches into the device so these, to obtain bait, these are those bucket sets where you get bait in a bucket and a bear reaches its hand in and it trips the, the um, throw arm for the cable and tightens the snare around his foot. Uh, when this hat when this is occurring the opening and inside diameter of the device must be no more than, more than six inches an animal may, based bait and or lure may not be placed within the device animal based bait is defined as animal matter including meat skin bones feathers hair or any other solid substance that used to be part of an animal this includes live or dead fish the trigger must be recessed at least 12 inches below the opening of the device any bait and or lure within the device may not be placed above the trigger or between the trigger and the opening and the opening to the device must be covered by a weight of at least 30 pounds when set placed intended to prevent access by non-target species 
Okay, so that's a lot of stuff there. You can rewind that and replay, uh, or you can uh, go on Inland Fishing and Wildlife website and, and look this up. Um, it's a notice of agency rulemaking proposal for bear trapping. Um, again, no, I'm not going to comment on that, uh, on how I feel about that regulation. I'm just going to tell you how it is. So that's what it is, and, and uh, if you want to keep bear trapping... For now, that's what you got to do. All right. I don't know if I'm going to set some bear traps. I get a, uh, I changed some things this fall, so I'm going to be able to trap coyotes this fall, I, I hope. And that's my plan. And uh, um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll think about setting for bear. That'd be kind of cool. Um, I'm going to have to, to uh, really do a lot of preparation if I decide to do that. But it might be interesting. So let's talk, I'm going to take a quick break here, and then let's talk about the fur harvesters auction results and fur prices. Okay, so the FHA fur harvesters auction results are in. The auction was uh, oh, about a week after the North American fur auctions uh, auction in North Bay, Ontario. The, the FHA auction was held in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, and the auction was kind of, uh, they've been holding that auction in Finland for a few years now to try to make it more convenient for buyers um, from primarily from Russia. Uh, so basically there are no surprises in this auction. If you listen to my report on the NAFA auction results, uh, there wasn't a lot of difference here with fur prices. Some items were a little better, some items were a little worse. Uh, but let's go over some details. Um, so beaver, of course, beaver prices are low. They continue to be low. It, it's a challenging market for beaver. Nobody seems to want them. And about 75% of the beaver offered at the FHA sale sold. But the, the spread between low and high quality beaver was quite a bit wider. So in the NAFA auction, I think most it was like nine to eleven dollars. The the averages on beaver, um, it was pretty well across the board. It, it was just hatter market, hatter beaver. Uh, didn't matter the the best quality, really prime, thick furred beaver, didn't sell for much more than the southern flat beaver. Um, the the fur harvesters auction always has a a really good collection of beaver and I think it attracts a few buyers that bid up the prices for those prime beaver that are going to be used for certain smaller markets uh, maybe if a little bit of a coat market maybe some people making beaver mitts and things like that so the better eastern beavers like uh, like what we trap here where I'm from they they average pretty good it, I mean it's sad to say this is pretty good but fourteen dollars and fifty six cents and uh, those same beaver, I think, average about ten, eleven dollars at NAFA. Um, but the the low quality se section three beavers, so the damaged ones, the southern beavers, they average a little less than eight dollars. So there's a wider spread than there was in the NAFA auction. A little better for the top end, and a little worse for the low end. Coyotes continue to do well. Now the coyote average at this auction was was quite a bit lower than last year. Last year there was quite a boom. Coyotes averaged a little bit over a hundred dollars at this auction last year. It was quite amazing. But the, uh, this year, you know, the, the that that market was not going to hold up forever. And you're you're ten, 
in a hot market like that, you tend to see some people uh, bid really high and maybe get a little out of control for a while and then pull back. So uh, this seems to be a little bit more of a realistic price, and some people might have been a little disappointed in it, but who can complain about $88 average for Western Coyotes? I mean, come on. So so that's what they, they averaged at this sale. Now, this interesting phenomenon we've been seeing this year with the uh, eastern coyotes, the ones that are, have thicker fur, the more prime, late-caught, or northern eastern coyotes, they demand for them has been bumping up. And the eastern coyotes at fur harvesters, this auction averaged $59. Again, those are, those are coyotes that were averaging $25 for a very long time, and uh, they were bumped up to maybe 35 to 45 the last couple of years with this hot coyote market, but 59. So uh, th- there, there seems to be less of a uh, pickiness or choosiness among buyers for you know perfect uh, pelts, and uh, they're they're looking at these eastern coyotes, and maybe there's a few dressers that are thinking, well, we can do something with this. Let's pay a little less, um, and and we'll still get a good quality quality coyote pelt 59 central section coyotes average $33 those are those are usually like 15 20 dollars so 33 that's pretty pretty good um, so the low end the high end of the coyotes went down a little bit the low end of the coyotes went up cats bobcats western bobcats average 416 dollars this is good this is a good price when you're considering long-term averages however People who sold at last year's FHA auction might remember that those same bobcats averaged almost $600 last year. So, you know, 416 isn't isn't great when you when you're thinking of remembering an average of 600. Uh, but but those high end cats are still holding up. There's still a good market for them. Now the big movement here has been very similar to the coyotes. The lower end bobcats have come up. The Canadian, Southern, and Central bobcats average about ninety dollars. That is awesome. That that really is awesome. I mean, those were even the last couple years covering this fur market. The years when Western cats were averaging over five hundred, five six hundred dollars, it seemed like those Southern cats were always averaging about fifty to sixty, and sometimes they'd be even down as much as thirty. This auction, they went for 90 So uh, I, I don't know what that market is for, for the lower-end cats, but obviously somebody wants them, and that was pretty exciting to see. Muskrat, $3.80. Not great. It's a little higher than last year. Muskrats are kind of just keeping a, a steady level, holding their own. Red Fox, uh, there was they were averaged twenty four twenty seven dollars, but less than half of those foxes offered sold. So that's probably just the better stuff. A raccoon, mostly of raccoon sold eighty three percent. So they're clearing out a bunch of raccoon, which is good <clears throat> because there's been quite a backlog of coons for a long time. The averages have a wide range in price, between four dollars and sixty two cents for the lower stuff to twelve twenty eight for the higher end. Um, this was this was not as good as the NAFA auction, um, but you know FHA coons FHA has got a lot of northern fur and Canadian fur, and it seems like there's not a lot of Canadian coons that can 
compete with the quality coon that comes out of like Iowa and, and parts of Minnesota. Um, so so there's going to be some variability in those prices. It seem, the market's still pretty choosy with coons, but at least they're moving, which is good. Um, now that doesn't mean that we can start flooding the market again with coons, because who knows, we may end up right back where we started, but it's encouraging to see things start to move. Lynx, Lynx came up just a little bit. Uh, they're about $73 average. Uh, you know, they've been 60 to 70 for a little while. Um, I always feel bad for my Canadian and Alaskan friends in the north that they're not getting a good price for these links. They should be getting $150, $200 for them. But, of course, links numbers are high. The populations are at their peak, and guys are trapping a bunch of them, and they're just, they're just not able to get a lot of money for them, unfortunately. But 73 hey, you take what you can get. Martin took a hit. Martin are down quite a bit. Um, the the very very best Martin at, on this sale averaged seventy six dollars, and the the large semi heavy Martin, which is a lot of what we catch here in Maine, especially early in the season, they averaged twenty nine dollars. Um, now the large heavies are like in the mid to late mid to high thirties, I believe, but that's that's a quite a, quite a price drop, and uh, I think a lot of guys with Alaskan and Canadian Martin were in the fifty to sixty dollar range, where they've been seventy to ninety in the past few years. So this was pretty disappointing. Um, the the demand seems to be uh, ticking down a little bit for Martin. Um, and then uh, of course mink, otter, Fisher, gray fox, weasel, pretty much none of those sold. So there was no averages. Those are probably going to be held on and sold in the next auction. Skunk, $3.90. Badgers, $26. Possum, $2. A few other minor items, but uh, that's the gist of it. And uh, so there's some good news, some bad news, I guess. I mean, fur market continues to chug along. Fur is selling. I think that's the big takeaway here. Prices have not dropped considerably. Uh, fur is still selling, and hopefully we're just kind of making, you know, we're kind of, we've hit a bottom, I believe, and and we're gonna start coming back out of it. I I think next year is gonna show some signs of improvement in the fur market. So I was paying pretty close attention to the fur harvesters auction and the NAFA auction for that matter results for Martin and Fisher because. Uh, the the Martin Fisher that I trapped this season I had not yet sent out to auction. I was kind of feeling things out, and I I had I had a hunch that maybe the prices were going to dip a little bit, and I really wasn't sure about sending them out. And I, I I hesitated just enough that I did not send end up sending them out in time for the auction, and I decided just to sit back and see what happened. After seeing the results, I decided not to send any at all for the next auction. So I actually boxed everything up and I shipped out all my Martin and Fisher pelts to be tanned. And if you follow my YouTube channel, Trapping Today, I just put out a video on sending furs out to get tanned and I kind of showed uh, putting those Martin and Fisher in the box and uh, different considerations, how to send them, and what to consider when it comes to getting your first hand. Those I sent to Moyle Mink and Tannery in Rupert, Idaho. Very reputable tannery. 
I've had uh, good results with them in the past. I know other people have sent furs there. Uh, I just heard from Cole recently, a friend here in northern Maine. He sent some Martin there, and he, he really liked uh, the results. He got them back quick, and, and it was a good tan, good price. So I sent them out. There's a number of tanneries that you can uh, use. Uh, there, there are a lot of small tanneries that have just opened recently. And the issue with those is they they all mean well and they want to do a good job, but the as as tanneries start to become a little more popular, they get hit with a backlog of tanning work that needs to be done, and it can be challenging because there's tanning is very labor intensive and it's a long process. It can be challenging for them to keep up with with what gets sent in. So uh, there there are tanneries that uh, you're gonna have potentially have issues with. So you got to be careful with that. Um, I I I've had people ask. Uh, someone actually commented on the YouTube video about sending to a different tannery. I, I honestly can't tell you. Uh, I can't give recommendations for places that I haven't sent fur to personally. So I, you know, I know Moyle, I've used them before and I've had good results. I've shipped to Furs for Fun. Uh, and also in Idaho, a guy that used to work for Moyle, I've had very good results there as well. The communication is not very good there, so it's hard to get a hold of the guy, never answers the phone. Uh, but the tanning is done really well, a good professional job. Um, other tanneries, I just can't tell you. I, I just haven't used them. But I, I have heard mixed results from some of them that, you know, some some people are pretty upset with a few of the other tanneries uh, for for varying reasons. So uh, just something to consider. But Moyle has a good reputation. They've done a good job for me and others in the past. So that's who I've been using. So I sent those furs out. I actually have a few of you guys that listen to the podcast that um, I've committed to uh, selling you Martin and Fisher pelts. So I have... Uh, looking at $75 for a Martin pelt and $100 for a Fisher pelt. And those are animals that were caught this past fall, winter on my trap line that you've been following along with. So if you're still interested in that, I, I have a bunch of them available to sell since I'm sending them all to get shipped. Uh, let me know. It'll be a few months. I'm not going to charge anything right off. Uh, just let me know if you want me to set one aside for you and you commit to buying one. I'll, I'll set it aside and uh, when they come in, I'll I'll let you know, and you can send me payment when they come in in a couple months. Um, it'll probably be two two months, maybe three. Um, and when they when they come in, let me know, and uh, I'll send you one. So now, in that YouTube video, I had somebody ask of, about uh, shipping fur to sell. So this was a, a trapper who's just kind of getting started. And doesn't have a whole lot of fur, but he was wondering about, you know, where's the best place to ship fur to sell? And I assume he means uh, the auction houses. There, there are a variety of places you can ship fur to sell. But um, I'm, I'm just going to, I want to address this question. It's a good question, but there really is not an easy answer to this. So... In short, there there is no best place to sell to ship to ship your fur. Um, 
And again, in in Fur Profit, my book, Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market, you can get that on Amazon, you can get that on trappingtoday.com, uh, PCS, Cotsbros, uh, F&T, a bunch of different places, but uh, pick up that book, support the, the podcast, support me, appreciate it. But I, I talk about all the different options and places to, to send your fur. But the point that I tried to make in that book is it's, it's going, you need to be flexible and you need to consider all those options and the decision is going to be different every year because it's going to depend on what the market's doing. It's going to depend on the auction house. You know, when FHA first started sending fur to Helsinki, like the first sale or two, the Martin average was way up from the NAFA auction. Um, you couldn't really predict that, but, um, you know, some people anticipated that they're going to get in front of more buyers that like that were interested in Martin and their prices were, were going to be potentially be bid up. And, and that actually is what happened. Um, there, you know, there are things to consider like uh, shipping uh, depots and agents for NAFA or FHA, which we'll, we'll go into in just a second. Um, shipping costs, uh, fees, handling fees, commissions, time cash flow how much time is it going to take for you to get your money back or do you need a paycheck quick or can you wait for a year um, is the auction going to sell tend to clear out more of your fur or are they going to hang on to it um, you know there there's just so many different things to consider so there, there is no right answer um, but let's let's just step back a quick second and let's talk about uh, just shipping fur in general. So I'm assuming that you mean when you say ship fur, you probably don't have a place to sell your fur locally, which makes sense because most of us don't. Uh, the local country fur buyers that used to be around all over the place are pretty much gone. The When the fur market crashed and never really came back, those guys... Uh, those guys went with it. They retired. Um, uh, most of that generation is either really, really elderly or has passed on. So we, we don't have a lot of local fur buyers left. So you're stuck with uh, pretty much like me, the U.S. Postal Service uh, carries a lot of your fur. And th that doesn't mean it has to go to auction. You can ship your fur to a number of different companies that will take your fur. Um, in fact, we had uh, Garrett Volk on from Volk Furs uh, on the podcast several episodes ago, and, and he's even started taking fur. He's not a very big buyer, but he started taking fur by mail. Um, the companies like, uh, you know, Grenwald will, will take your fur by mail. Um, if you get in touch, with, you know, you look for a regional fur buyer and get in touch with them. Um, I know, oh, who, who else we got? Uh there's uh, there's a variety of different options. Xander Fur, Canoka Fur Company, Epler Fur. There's a number of different places that if you call them up or email them, and you you know tell them what you got, oftentimes you ship your fur to them. They will look it over, grade it, give you a price. If you don't like the price, they can ship it back to you. Uh, if you like the price, they'll send you a check. Uh, and, and the the advantage to this is 
number one, you have a direct contact person that you can talk to about your fur. And you can get feedback on what you did right, what you did wrong. You know, early uh, new time trappers who don't have a lot of experience handling fur, there might be some things that you can really benefit from with feedback from, from buyers. Where if you can get a guy on the phone, even if you can't see him in person, you get him on the phone and, and they can tell you, well, yeah, you did a great job on this and that. But, you, you know, you might want to try this or you can improve on that. Um, your opening cut, if you chain if you do it a little bit differently you'll get a, a better pelt or you should flush that beaver a little bit more or you over flush that muskrat uh, things like that can really benefit you in the future because you can start doing a much better job um, in handling your fur so that feedback's critical the again the other thing with the the regional fur buyer is uh, you like their offer they cut you a check and you have money right then and there so within you know i don't know couple weeks you got money uh, you send to the fur auction houses and you may not get money for a year or two depending on when it actually your fur actually sells and uh, when the auction takes place uh, so if you, you know you just barely miss an auction deadline you get pushed to the next auction which is months away and then the, the your fur does not sell 100% a bunch of it gets held over to the next year and you know you can if you need cash flow, that's not the way to do it. Uh, the auction, the advantages to the auction are that you're you're going, you you do not have run the risk of someone trying to lowball you on your fur, because at the auction you have a number of different buyers who are all competing for that fur, and if demand is high, like in the coyote market and bobcat market right now. Uh, that's ideal situation for an auction because uh, you're going to get the best price because the buyers are going to bid that number up until they can't make any money on that fur. And so so the auction, I've always said it's the true discovery of market value uh, or price, true, the true uh, avenue or, or the true uh, method of price discovery. Um, the, the price is what the mo highest number that somebody is willing to pay for it. Uh, the the country buyer you're probably not going to get that you're probably going to get a little more of a conservative number because they still need to to make money and they can't take as much risk necessarily and they're you know they're buying they're buying your entire lot of fur which includes probably a wide variety of quality and size and different species whereas someone sitting at an auction might be bidding on select number one large martin um, of dark brown color and that's all they're bidding on they're bidding on 150 skins in one lot and that's what they're getting so they can obviously pay a lot more because every single one of those skins they know exactly what they're going to use that for or what market they're going to send it to so you have a variety of options um, what I would do is if you're looking back to the question from the the poster on YouTube, uh, what's the best place to ship my fur to sell? Uh, what I would start out with is is number one, uh, get go to nafa.ca and go to furharvesters.com. Go to those two websites and look at the shipping depots or the uh, the 
the sh- uh, shippers or pickup locations that they have. Each of them is going to have a list of different routes and different depots of where and when they're picking up for in your area. And they'll have them sometimes they'll be listed out by state or by region. Depending on where you are, though, you want to look at this and look at both places because the there's a pretty good chance that within two hours of where you live, there may be a depot uh, or a pickup location uh, for one of those auction houses. And that's what I would start with because that's your contact point. And if you if you got a place like we've got for NAFA, we have a place uh, 30 minutes away from me that does a NAFA pickup. They don't do it every for every auction, but they, you know, they depending on the year, they they do at least one a year. So, we can go over there, you can have your fur bagged up, tag it, send it off to NAFA. Someone comes through with a truck and picks that up and sends it to NAFA. So that's very convenient because I go there to go shop for groceries, uh, buy supplies, do, you know, do errand runs every once a month. Um, so, so it's convenient to drop off fur as well. Um, there's also a route. Uh, nobody from fur harvesters comes up this far north, but there's one about two hours away. There's a parking Walmart parking lot where a guy shows up in early January uh, once a year, and between like seven and eight o'clock in the morning. And if you show up there with your fur, he'll he has a fur harvesters pick up there and he'll take care of that for you and and ship it off to the auction so that's that's the first route I would take now um, I don't have any reason to be favorable towards NAFA or FHA necessarily they're they're both really good auction companies I I, I mean FHA tends to cater 100% to trappers because that's kind of what they're all about is trappers Uh, NAFA is kind of a combination of trappers and uh, ranch ranchers for fur farmers uh, because NAFA sells a lot of ranch mink and ranch fox. So uh, the, there's some differences there. NAFA overall is bigger primarily because of that ranch market. But um, they're, they're two very good companies. They're good at what they do. And they, uh, you know, they, they do their best to get the most for your fur. So, so I would try to do that. Now, if you look into that and there's not a depot location nearby you, or, you know, some of us may live in a place where there's just not a lot of fur or you're not near a lot of people, um, or not near a lot of people who trap. So there's not that option and you don't have a local fur buyer. So what do you do? Um, you know what I did once? I actually, um, I actually called up NAFA in Stoughton, Wisconsin, and I said, I got it. I had I don't know what I had. I had maybe 50 muskrats that I had trapped in uh, northern Utah, and um, the fur buyer there was a really good guy. Uh, he I, I so enjoyed talking with him and selling fur to him, but you know, the price was a little low on rats, and I just wanted to send them to auction and see what they would get. And there wasn't a pickup location nearby, so I just called up Stoughton, Wisconsin, and said, "Hey, listen, you know I know muskrats are are." small and cheap and easy to ship so I said um, is there a way for me just to get fur straight to the auction in Canada and he said absolutely he said put our address on a box box up your muskrats 
Um, he asked my name, and I told him, and I had an account already with NAFA. He said, yep, we, we got you on file here. He said, just uh, put your name and address inside the box, uh, send the rats here, and we'll get them to the auction, no problem. And they did. So uh, that's an option. Uh, fur harvesters does not have that option if you're in the U.S. because they do not have a... Uh, see, NAFA has... Stoughton, Wisconsin is like right near the Canadian border. So they have a an American location and a and a Canadian location right nearby each other. And my understanding is that is set up that way so that they can take fur that's shipped through US Postal Service from or UPS or FedEx all the way around the country can go into a location that's still in the US but is close to the auction house. And then they take all that fur in Wisconsin kind of uh, you know, gather it all together, bundle it up, and ship it over the border in one large uh, um, quantity. So, so that's a great way for you to get your furs to the the NAFA auction. Fur harvesters, you're going to have to go through a regional depot, a regional pickup, uh, in order to do that. So th- I don't uh, actually. I have I have mailed uh, I have shipped furs to my local. Uh, guy who is like six hours away in Maine and uh, I, I actually have boxed up Martin and Fisher pelts and sent uh, sent those to him and uh, and and then he's he sent them off but the only disadvantage there was you have to send them quite a bit quite a ways in advance of the auction to get them there uh, the the stout in Wisconsin I think I I shipped like really close to the auction date uh, past a lot of the receiving dates and still got them in, so that was that was good. Um, but but that I guess in a nutshell, I'm, I hope I I hope that helps to answer your question. There's no best place to ship your fur, but there are a variety of options, and the advantages and disadvantages of those options just depend on where you're at, what you're trapping, um, and what uh, what other alternatives you have in your area, whether that be um, different auction houses, different fur buyers, um, in, in proximity to, to where you trap. So, um, just, just do a little research and, and, uh, the, the other good thing about NAFA and FHA now is they, they're all computerized and when they get your fur, um, you're going to see what all of your fur graded and what it sold for. So you, you do get a certain level of feedback, even though it's not like the one-on-one that you get with the fur buyer. You do get feedback there as to what your fur graded, and uh, you know you can look at that and try to uh, try to interpret that and figure out what you might you know what you might do to make that better. So something to think about. I uh, hope I hope that helps. If you have any other questions, and I did not fully answer that, just let me know, and I'll I'll try to dig in. Uh, a little deeper. There's probably some things that I uh, didn't think of in through that uh, process of trying to explain the the different options of shipping fur. So that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening in. And uh, there's a lot to come here on Trapping Day podcast. I'm excited about all the different things that uh, th- that we've got going on. And spring is coming eventually. So uh, spring beaver trapping, 
you know, I'm, I'm considering uh, making a few sets. I've talked this to a local guy that's really pumped up and excited to get, get going on beaver trapping. Um, I, I don't usually get a lot of time to do that, but I, I may, I may be making a few sets. Um, Kyle Kellen, if you're listening, the Cots Bros, uh, I, uh, I, I'll probably be grabbing a few TS 85s. We'll see. I, I may be ordering some of those from your website here shortly. I'm, I'm kind of pinching pennies here on the budget, but, uh, I'd like to get some 85s out on some, uh, caster mound sets here for the spring season, which for us occurs, uh, starting somewhere around the middle of April, depending on the, the year we're having. So, uh, so want to get after that. Um, I've got the Walter Arnold project, so uh, keep keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, I'm really excited about this. I don't know. I have no idea what direction this is going to go. There's a lot of things I have to work out right for me to be able to do this. So uh, I've got some feelers out. I'm looking at different options. I'm thinking of different things, uh, but there's a lot there. There's there's a lot of material to work with if I can in, indeed. Uh, put it all together and, and I'm able to use it all. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about that. So uh, maybe next episode I could be reading you uh, an old trapping article that, that Mr. Arnold wrote uh, that I'm trying to work into a, a different project. We'll see how that goes. Uh, pause a trip pan system. I just retrofitted some of my uh, number 14 jump traps for beaver, for under ice beaver trapping with the Positrip pan system and uh, really excited about that so I want to talk about that in a little more detail. Uh, another book about trapping, uh, historic trapping in interior Alaska. I'm sorry guys uh, if you think I'm going a little nuts on this and uh, you're not really excited about this the way I am. I, I just can't help myself. I, I really can't. I, <laughs> I'm so attracted by this wilderness trapping in Alaska uh, that I just can't help but but get excited about it. Uh, my friend Jim up there in interior Alaska tipped me off to the James Carroll book. James Carroll was a trapper in Fort Yukon that uh, was actually mentioned in the Sam Sam White book, which I covered in last week's podcast. So uh, I just bought James Carroll's book, his diaries from 1911 to 1922, Above the Arctic Circle. And wow, I just started reading it and it is, it is some something else. It's amazing. Um, I'm excited. I think I might have to read you guys the, uh, the story about his trip to the old Crow Flats muskrat trapping in 1920. 1920 when muskrats were paying $3 a piece. And $3, I just ran it through an inflation calculator, was approximately $37, $38 in today's money. So think about that. Um, yeah, so so that's that's really exciting stuff. Um, I, I just love it. I can't, I can't get enough of it. And uh, call me crazy. Uh, tell me to stop doing it, but I'm not going to. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, love doing this podcast and look forward to future episodes until next time keep on talking trapping keep on thinking trapping get out there set some traps if you can and email me jrodwood at gmail.com j-r-o-d-w-o-o-d at gmail.com i absolutely love hearing from you and we'll catch you on the next episode